Welcome back to the Will Be Movies. This is a podcast looking at 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. This is the fourth and final question mark asterisk volume. Uh, we are doing the 80s, 1980 to 1989. Assuredly, the final volume that will release in the decades of the 2020s. <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to be a long time, and who knows what we'll be doing then. That voice you heard was Ben Phillips. He is joining me for episode 76, The Shining. Benny Boy, bittersweet to be back for the last run, but you know, it's been a good time, and 100 is a good number, so let, let's. Let, let's do it. And let's, this, let's... Is, this has been our sort of like mini pandemic podcast. Yeah, that was. Well, I mean, we were kind of brainstorming it before that, but like we did, we did the first volume before the pandemic yeah. started, but like, and then like, the second volume broke me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was the year where we posted something every single week, um, and I needed a big long break. But you know, that feels like a long time ago now. I think I think we're being very more, much more sensible around it now. Like we've taken yeah. a month off for, after Marvel. Like we guess there was still some editing duties to do, but like we've taken some time off. There's been some small life upheaval yeah for both of us houses Um, and whatnot and to be honest like i mean people may have just noticed but like over time rather than me being precious about it hosting alternate weeks has taken a great deal of pressure off me to like be super super ready for certain episodes um so i appreciate that and then behind the scenes you know we're swapping editing duties so yeah it's more fun these days and speaking of fun Hey, it's everyone's favorite bad movie. That's actually a good movie. You fools, The Shining. <laughs> that was, I mean, that, that was going to be my first question. Is like, is this the first time on this podcast we are discussing a movie that genuinely the entire critical conversation around it has shifted? It's one of the most dramatic reappraisals I can think of. Because like, we have another one coming up in a couple of weeks, mm. and if you know your nineteen eighties movies that like go from being derided to loved yeah it's probably pretty obvious what that movie's going to be <laughs> but like it is crazy to look at like the modern day appraisal of this movie and you've got pauline kale like basically going like again and again the movie leads us to expect something almost promises it and then disappoints us and i'm like <sighs> what do you think this movie is like it is, is it delivering it is so difficult to put yourself in the mind of critics at the time and like you know the horror didn't horror didn't used to be plodding you know, and, and like mm. there is a real deliberate sense of tension. They get you to almost two hours before the thing we all know is going to happen happens, and it's still majestic and gripping. And like, you know, that's a problem that Stephen King had. I mean, I mean, you know, so, you know, directed by Stanley Kubrick, co written with Diane Johnson, based on the very famous novel of the same name by Stephen King. I mean, it, um, it's in this weird era for King where, like, basically any movie he or any book he writes. Smash is, a, is immediately also put into a like production on a movie. Yeah, because like, Carrie is... and Salem's a lot. Carrie in particular is fucking huge. Um, like my parents have seen Carrie, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and like obviously this isn't like the most egregious example, but like the book comes out in 1977, the film's out in 1980. Yeah. Uh, you've got other ones where Christine is one where like I think they they're working from the manuscript. Of yeah, the book. exactly. And... Like just whatever your next thing is, we'll make a movie of it, Stephen. Go for it. No shortage of Stephen King material to work with. That man pumps out material. But, you know, one of his... He famously doesn't like the movie. I think, basically, it becoming enormous has made him slightly soften how grumpy he is about it. But he still doesn't like it. And one of his big things right from the beginning was 
if you cast Jack Nicholson, I know he's going to go crazy and kill them all. <laughs> because which of one I guess, over the which I guess is fair. It is a fair thing to say. And I think yeah. the first thing is he's looking at this as like an adaptation of his work. And his mm-hmm. work is fundamentally about... His, I mean, it's about him. And I can understand this I, an incredibly personal book to him where like he is in real life was a struggling with, with drug addiction and all the rest of it. And so a movie comes out that basically goes like... I mean, that, that's that's the thing for me is... Uh, so he is very much in the camp of, no, there are fucking ghosts, they're real, that's that. This this hotel is haunted, blah, blah, blah. And Kubrick's like, what if all in mind? And I think <laughs> the biggest thing that Stephen King doesn't like about that is Kubrick is basically saying, hey, bud, what if you're the problem? Yeah. <laughs> because he also doesn't like that the alcoholism isn't brought up a lot more than it is and that Jack is just has just always been a dick, basically. Like, you know, he he fucking broke his kid's arm and he is horrible to his wife. And, like, obviously alcoholism is a real thing and, and grips people and changes people and, and can be demonic. But, like, I think the reading in the movie is, alcohol or not, Jack is, is, a, is a horrible human being. And yeah. if King is admitting that he wrote Jack semi-autobiographically with his writer's block and his, his addictions, it's like, oh... Are you saying I'm not a nice person because I'm not cool with that? <laughs> um, yeah, and you, I mean, that's the thing is obviously this movie basically, like, it is a very slow descent, but, like, the movie does make a point of kind of, like, is the supernatural stuff real? Is it, mm-hmm. like, what what is going on here? And, yeah. like, the, I think, okay, right, so, two <laughs> questions up front. Sure. One. Yeah. How, like, what is your relationship to this movie? Is this, like, one of those ones that, like, you come to when you're, like, 17, I mean, look, 17 years old? Like, we, as, like I think you know the answer before I'm going to say it. We all saw that Treehouse of Horror first. And just damn near every frame of it has been parodied, copied, referenced to death. You know, like I knew about the elevator of blood and the twins and the fucking big wheel and all of that shit long before I saw The Shining. Yeah, I literally, like when we finished watching the movie and like my partner was like feeling really freaked out, I was like, right. We need to subvert this. Has she not to... seen the Simpsons episode? She's seen the Simpsons episode, okay, but it's okay. just like we need to subvert this. We're going to watch the Treehouse of Horror right, okay. to basically like undercut all the the horrific stuff by having it be like joked about and stuff like that. <laughs> like, like Mr. Burns going like, "Oh, I thought the blood normally gets off on the second floor." <laughs> you want to get sued? And just you know, it has to be acknowledged. Obviously, the Simpsons. They were very good at what they did. And I actually hear the current season is, like, shockingly good. I think they have always been so fucking strong at parodies, and I think that Shining one might be their finest work. And, like, uh, yeah, I think to distill it down to ten minutes, less eight minutes, something like that, and you hit it's, all it's of the bullet that. points. Yeah, exactly. Um, and is but that the best Treehouse of Horror? Is that also the one where they're eating the students? And... Yes, yes, yeah, it is. It's, that's it's probably the best five, one. Then. It's the time travel one, and it's the one where they're eating the students. It's yeah, yeah, an incredible episode of Simpsons at like the peak of their run. Yeah, it, it doesn't get much better than it. I mean, like the fact that they take the the, the axe to Willie's back <laughs> and repeat it in all three stories is just a beautiful piece of repetition. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's in a. It, it's one of those things like watching Star Wars for the first time, knowing that Vader is his dad, because just, like, memes got to me before Star Wars did. Watching The Shining, knowing, like, every beat, essentially. Obviously, there's there's more going on here, and there's some fucked up imagery that they couldn't replicate one for one. But yeah, that's... For me, it was always something where I never didn't know what was going on, 
Um, I never didn't know how it turned out. So for me, you know, it might have been nice to see it sight unseen and, and like not know anything about it. But yeah, what about you? I watched this for the first time in school. Wow. Like like okay. our teacher our teacher put it on like we were I mean I I was kind of like older then because we were like seventeen we had to get like permission from the parents to watch it because obviously it's an eighteen over here mm. but like we were doing it in our I can't remember if I think it was like communication studies and we were literally yeah. like we're gonna study like the the imagery that's kind of in this movie and like the way that like it conveys tone and period and all this different stuff so like literally for like two <laughs> for two and a half lessons or whatever we watched The Shining and yeah. it was just like one of those things where like I was like. I really want to go to this fucking class because, like, we were an hour into this movie. So I watched it in this very, like, bifurcated manner where, like, I didn't watch it all in one sitting, but it still, like, completely fucking landed for me. Even, again, with the Simpsons knowledge in my background and I'd, I'd read the novel, so I knew the ins and outs of this, like, really, really well. But it was just, like, watching it, even in, like, the most awful circumstances that you could possibly watch a movie in, it was still like, yeah, this fucking rips. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I guess it's like, oh no, there's tits, but don't worry, it'll fuck them up <laughs> more than it'll titillate them. So, uh... I mean, I mean that there was definitely some kids in the class who were taken as a DOS class who, <laughs> who immediately the moment there was like a fully naked woman started like hooting and hollering, it was like, no, 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 like fucking like this is Give gonna. Give it a second. <laughs> um, and so that leads on to my second question: It's mm. like I read the book before I read this, right? Or, I've, before I watched I've, this, I've never read the book. Never read the book. Have you have you read much King? I don't like Stephen. <laughs> I. I I like him as an ideas factory. I don't like him as a writer. I hear his short stories are much better in terms of the quality of writing. But whenever I've tried to read a full Stephen King novel, I just, I can't deal with him. I don't like how he writes. I mean, he is, he is literally writing words. I mean, I think he's got some like incredible prose, but you can tell the books that are like, this was the cocaine bender yeah, and like, kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, there's infamous stuff like he, him writing himself into Dark Tower. But I remember reading, like, the true intricacies of It with the fucking turtle. And I'm like, what the fuck are you smoking, Steve? I mean, the turtle is, like, important to, to the Dark Tower as well, where, like, <laughs> Pennywise and It are, like, the opposite ends of, like, a, a spectral balance that involves, like... The, the the multiverse of the Stephen King books is really interesting if you want to get into it, but, like... I do not. <laughs> I just... Uh, I was like, why is there so much about this damn turtle? <laughs> not that much about the turtle in the book to be fair I'm the, no i'm just like you know why is this fucking horror movie about a clown it got this uh, why is it got why has it got a mystic space turtle yes. that's trying to kill you the ancient source of all evil or whatever yeah and why is stephen king a character in the dark town because he almost died i know he did stop writing bro although it does make for that very funny scene in family guy where he is hit by the van uh, and he's like writing literally in midair and then lands on his feet and goes, done! Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have not read it. How, how, how do you like it? I mean, it's not my favourite King book, mm. I think is, is like, I think that's also what kind of, I know it's held up as like one of his top books, but it's mm. one for me that like, because it isn't in the top tier of one that I've read, I'm kind of able to kind of shrug it off and go like, yeah, but the movie's kind of like where it's at. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Well, like, you know, like, so Kubrick, you know, a titan, had some career snafus. <laughs> People did not like Barry Lyndon. Um, so he goes five years without making a movie. It kind of kicks off, like, a trend now where, like, he does not make a movie for, like, seven years. And then after that, he doesn't make a movie for 12 years. Yeah. And then, obviously, he dies before yeah. Eyes Wide Shut comes out. So this is kind of... 
one of the last hurrahs that he has yeah. behind the camera. So he, he's seeking to make a commercial hit after, you know, basically people are like, yeah, you can make pretty shots, but it's fucking boring, dude. And there is an element of that. I, I don't think The Shining is boring, but like that was, that label again got thrown at him where it's like, Jack Nicholson's good and you've shot this well, but like this is boring and bad. Again, I don't think any of that's true, but that was kind of the consensus. So, you know, he he's he's trying to make a commercial hit. He uh, the the story goes he is delivered a sack full of Stephen King novels and he is just tossing them across the room rejecting them one at a time and then he just really likes The Shining and he's like yeah okay let's make this and, and Stephen King to... writes the first draft and he's like no this is bad fuck off and then he brings in Diane Johnson another novelist who basically says yeah The Shining's a bad book but um, and I think is like, yeah, Stephen King's a bad writer. And then there's just decades of beef where Stephen King is like, you don't understand my book. And everyone else is like, it's not about understanding, it's about improving. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, is like, basically what Kubrick does is he strips out all the stuff that he doesn't give a shit about from yeah. The Shining. Yeah. Like, because the whole plot of The Shining is hinged around, like, this kid who has The Shining, and the kid is the focal character. Yeah, and, it is like, bizarre how inconsequential The Shining is to the movie The Shining. <laughs> like, like, the kid... I mean, you can say that, like, he realised his footprints were being followed because of The Shining, and that's what let him escape. But beyond that, like, he doesn't really get any premonitions that are all that helpful to him. And... I would also say that, like, the... Like the, the, the knowing the way out of the maze, and sure, the sure, that sure. is like him using the powers and stuff like that. And like, but there's, but it's all completely subtext. subtext. Yeah, and it's like you can hand wave the entire Shining phenomenon as just like a fucking trauma response um, to his 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 abusive father who broke his shoulder or dislocated his shoulder. I mean, obviously Hallahan is like. Oh, I've got it too, and and you hear his voice in his head and all that. So that's slightly less ambiguous. But, like... but in the in the book, like they are fully communicating oh, yeah. like, telepathically and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and yeah. and even the movie kind of like comes down and like because obviously Doc sees like a lot, or Danny sees a lot of like imagery throughout the movie. But then by the end of it, Wendy is also that's the thing is if they all saw different delusions that helps the idea that like there's nothing going on here you have just descended into madness due to isolation but the fact that she sees the exact same imagery is like okay well it's a bit harder to say that nothing's going on here you know the elevator of blood she she's the only one to see the room full of skeletons she doesn't see the twins does she she doesn't see the twins but she <laughs> the twins who are not sees, twins because they're two the years apart and everything she does see the bear blowjob what's your reading of the bear blowjob <laughs> One of the most striking images in this entire movie. Yeah. Like, I, I've got no idea how to like unpack it at any level. <laughs> the but, guy like... receiving is not anyone we've seen, is it? Like, no. Because, you know, it's been a while, but I was like, oh, is that meant to be Grady or the bartender or something? And it's like the subtext is, you know, they were having these weird sex parties at the hotel and his wife caught him, so he murdered her. I don't, I don't know. But... I mean, I mean, Kubrick's relationship to sex is, like, always <laughs> super fascinating because, obviously, he does... He his it, his last movie is a fuck movie. <laughs> so... Yeah, but it's, like, a completely unerotic fuck movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tom Cruise. So... Yeah, exactly. It's Tom Cruise <laughs> and Nicole Kidman and kind of, like, proves that they don't have the chemistry that you think they need to have despite being a married couple. Hilarious. Um, I know one of the movies he wanted to make was he wanted to make a porn movie mm. about a famous director resorting to filming porn. Who wants to make Boogie Nights? Um. Basically, but like with actual <laughs> sex. And But then like yeah. everyone kind of was coming out saying like, no, Kubrick's too kind of like repressed about sex to make 
yeah exactly i mean what it needs to be it would have been interesting but it definitely wouldn't have been like like kind of a, a top level kubrick movie if he had gone through with with it and i think that's what makes it interesting is that like for what little sex there is in Kubrick movies is normally used as kind of like it's a, a cudgel, it's cudgel yeah, or yeah, yeah, in some yeah. ways like like the stuff the sex stuff in Clockwork Orange is horrific apart from the fucking the Beethoven threesome or whatever <laughs> yeah and like you know Jack tries to bang a random hot lady and is punished for it kind of you know like it's it's and this is all classic horror like you fuck you die is kind of <laughs> like the rule and but yeah, there is this sort of thing about Kubrick where he's he was reported to have like a 200 IQ. IQ is bullshit, by the by. But, you know, some people have said he's quite a cold director. He views his, you know, the actors as his like subjects, they're insects. Um, one of the famous parts about this movie is, you know, he put them through hell. Um, Jack Nicholson is like throwing scripts away because he knows they're going to get changed. They're shooting for a year. They're shooting like over 12-hour days. Uh, Shelley Duvall is made physically ill by the process, loses her hair. Yeah, horrific. And, um, and I think that's a good opportunity to kind of discuss one major piece of the legacy of this movie mm. is... <laughs> so Shelley Duvall is really fucking good in this movie. I know she's not asked to do much, but she so fully commits to all of it. And I know she's come out in later years and basically said, like, yes, the movie hurt me on, like, a very fundamental level and has given me issues, like, post-doing the movie and stuff like that. But, like, I, she doesn't seem to hold a grudge against anyone else involved in the movie. Like, she says that Kubrick was warm to her. But, obviously, like, the movie... Like, Kubrick is a famously prickly person. We cannot understate that, like, he probably was doing things that were, like, like damaging her. But I know one of, like, her last public interviews was about The Shining and basically her saying, like, she liked doing it. She's proud of the work that she did. It's just impacted her immensely. And, yeah, and it ultimately, which... ultimately leads to her getting a nomination for Worst Actress. <laughs> yeah, which the, they the rescind after. They did it for PR because they, they slapped Bruce Willis with, you know, some... Because he, he just they... made loads of movies and they were like, oh, they're going to have a whole Bruce Willis category. And then months later, it's revealed he has aphasia and he's retired and they took a mass... I mean, the Razzies suck anyway. Like, I, They're very mean-spirited in a way that isn't funny. They're, 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 yeah, they're mean spirited, and they're in a way that they kind of reflect the overwhelming view of the culture. But like, they don't examine the culture. Like, they're more interested in big directors making flops and just kind of like the bottom of the barrel worst movies. Like, then like if you're making a worst movie list, have the balls to do like the Joker is on our worst movie list or like like stuff like that. Like, nominate have actual takes but it feels like whenever they do this, they just kind of go like, what are the movies that people don't like? Oh, let's put the new Adam Sandler movie on the fucking list and it's just it's so lazy and it's so reductionist of the culture and you look back at some of the movies that get nominated and you're like oh no you're just like following along with a trend you're not actually having independent thought about cinema and stuff like this you just want to have a a little ceremony where you take the piss out of the hollywood bigwigs essentially i her performance is is much discussed um, and I think much like the movie, it's been reappraised where I think a lot of people at the beginning did agree she isn't very good. And then there was this kind of change where it's like, no, she's like what makes it work. She seems so authentic. And again, I'm not validating any of how that film was made. I don't believe in method acting or treating people, you know, without human dignity. But like from every account, she was like genuinely terrified at several points. 
yeah, that's the thing. Fincher esque numbers of retakes. Can you imagine how many times, like, if you're doing the fucking like the the famous door breaking down with the axe scene, mm. and just repeatedly going like, right, we're changing the door, Shelley. Um, we'll be back for a second take in five minutes, yeah. and just like living in that headspace. Yeah for as long as she probably was forced to. Like, it, it just sounds yeah. horrific. And I, th- I think something that doesn't help her is the quality of the dialogue. A lot of her lines... <laughs> there's a lot of crossover with David Lynch, to me, where none of the people talk like human beings and every mm. conversation is, like, contrived and heightened. And it, it's all it's all on purpose. But, like... She is tasked with some very difficult lines where she's having to just walk into a room and like try and strike up a conversation with a man that has no interest in talking to her. And I know, you know, again, that is the point, but it does mean that some of her dialogue sounds a lot more stilted. And, you know, like by stark contrast, when you let Jack Nicholson just play and, and let him do the stuff with the ghosts, and then, you know, obviously the whole ending, but, you know, what just the pure like, acting of him with the ghosts just sort of unravelling and just being a little bit weird. There is a stark contrast in the quality there. And again, you know, this movie gets no Oscar noms. Jack Nicholson quite clearly deserved an Oscar nomination for this because he is doing some wild acting throughout the yeah. movie. Yeah, so I mean, that's the, this movie gets two Razzie nominations, Stanley Kubrick for The Shining as direct, worst director and Shelley Duvall, worst actress, which obviously got rescinded this year. But because we're talking about it, like, let's... So best actor mm. in at the 53rd Academy Awards was Robert De Niro, Raging Bull. Well-deserved win there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, Fucking yeah. great movie. Uh, Robert Duvall, The Great Santini... John Hurt, The Elephant Man, Jack Lemmon, Tribute, and Peter O'Toole, The Stuntman. And it kind of feels like it is a reputation of, like, the shining status in culture and stuff like that. But, like, Jack Nicholson is obviously, even at this point, like, a absolute monster. Like, we are only nine years away from him being, like, the highest paid actor ever in Batman. Like, every single Jack Nicholson movie is kind of, like, a, a new, like, is this his best performance ever kind of thing. And to kind of completely snub it here feels like absolutely crazy but i mean and it's kind of one of the bigger arguments for it'd be interesting to do uh, like 10 year retrospective oscar nominations where you kind of go like look back on the year and stuff like that and obviously hollywood would never do that or never hold off on uh doing these things but like you have to imagine that some of these nominations are like reflexive we're just going to give some of these actors nominations because we normally give them nominations or like their career oscars and stuff like that and it's it's sad that the oscars kind of like falls into that and uh, i mean other categories obviously best picture we're going to discuss here uh, ordinary people um directed by rob redford wins best picture coal miner's daughter the elephant man raging bull and tess it feels like even in hindsight raging bull probably should have won that oscar and we would have kind of like been done with the the decades-long snubbing of martin scorsese but like if you're doing this nowadays the shining certainly makes that kind of like five um even on the list of like the list that i use for the greatest movies of all time like the shining is 84th best movie of all time i think the, the the highest rated movie that we've ever covered uh on this podcast behind raging bull at 25 ahead of empire strikes backs at 283 the elephant lands up there heaven's gates up there airplanes up there blues brothers like a lot of good movies in 1980 and like none of them apart from Raging Bull that I just listed, were nominated for, for Best Picture. It's a very weird time in culture, and again, it feels like a completely different type of movie has kind of, like, floated to the top. 
yeah. uh, since then. Like you, you think nowadays, like Empire Strikes Back should have probably got a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I'm still reeling from hearing this is the highest rated movie we've ever covered <laughs> on this list, at least. I oh, think okay, we, we're okay. Gonna, on the, we're gonna like probably hit a few, a couple more in this, I think. But like, yeah, but this is one of the few like movies in the top 100 of all time from the list that I use. Weird. Yeah, I mean, obviously that is a strong group of actors for Best Actor, and I'm not saying he should have won, but just just his the way he can control his fucking face. <laughs> like, oh, like the, Jim Carrey-esque levels of facial manipulation. Like, the stuff he's doing with his eyebrows, not to... There's no other way to phrase this. The tongue work he is doing at times. He's like, give me the, give me the bat, and his tongue is just sort of coming out, and, and just the weird little looks he does. And... Even just to start that, the first time he sees the ghost or imagines the ghost, whatever you want to call it, when he is just like desperate for a drink and then he just he's runs his hands through his hair, looks up, and we just see him looking directly into camera or past camera. I can't actually quite remember. But and just his whole face, his whole demeanor changes. And it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think of the scene in the car where mm. they're traveling there and like he's so obviously annoyed he hates them. He hates his family. <laughs> like, all the conversation they're trying to make him to do, and then the moment he perks up is the moment he gets to talk to his son about, like, the... the, <laughs> or the, the whatever, well, like, the, the, the deaths or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, the, he, he perks up then. And so like, macabre. And, yeah. And, like, you know, there's so... I also love the, like, the takedown of the wanky uh, writer as well. You know, that this is his important work and she is not to disturb him and, and all of this. And, like, you just know he's, like, a thoroughly mediocre to bad writer and thinks he's, like, some god. And, like, you know, I mean, he's come like... up here to work. And, like, well, he's come up here to be the caretaker for the fucking hotel. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> and we can see that Wendy does all of the upkeep. <laughs> yeah, and there's, you know, there's so many readings into, like, the owner and, and like, you know, the... You know, it, it's, are they aware of everything? And, like, Halloran, Halloran is very, like, oh, there's nothing wrong with Room 237. <laughs> and and the ball, and, and there is a famous cut scene at the end where Kubrick had the the, the film literally destroyed and physically removed, um, which is why it still isn't on any, like, home release director's cut. Yeah, they haven't, they haven't included it on yeah, any yeah. Where, yeah, where, like, Wendy and Danny are in a hospital... They say Jack's body had never been found, and he is—he very purposefully gives Danny the ball, and I think both Shelley Duvall and Diane Johnson are, are just sort of like I think that was a mistake to take out. Or, or there's like differing. Some people are like the ambiguity is the strength, and some people are like, oh, but that would have like helped with the the wrap up, and like you know the yellow ball doesn't seem that significant throughout the movie but like it when it rolls to a halt out of nowhere it lands in the exact spot where Hallahan is gonna die and it's like maybe if you make a bigger thing of the ball <laughs> like maybe the owner gave Jack the ball and the ball is like a physical symbol of like passing on this weird like you know is he a reincarnation is the hotel alive and it swallowed him into the past like I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. I like the ending, personally, which is yeah, like I mean, the fucking I, I, corpse and then the the photo. Yeah, yeah. I, I fucking love that. Like, I love how many different interpretations you can have yeah. around what is happening here. Is like, is it 
he, has he actually sold his soul to the devil is mm. is one like, yeah I've, I've heard that where like because he's a writer and he's obsessed with words and he signed a contract and he says i gave my word and it's like have you given this and he, he literally says i would give my soul for a for a beer and the simpsons like you know <laughs> they distill that down to like i'll give you a beer if you murder your family basically <laughs> and you know it's obviously on the nose but it works and like you know is that the the idea he's made this like faustian pact like you must correct your family. You must stop this. You know, there are so many things with race going on here, not just with African-Americans, but there's also a lot of, like, Native American symbolism all over everywhere. The, the, the hotel is on what Americans call an Indian burial ground. Obviously, it's not the correct verbiage, but... Yeah, and, like, you see the cans in the background a lot. He's talking about white man's burden and, like, loser has to clean up America and how they had to fight off Native Americans when they built the hotel. and So there is this sort of, like, is the hotel, like, a giant symbol of, like, imperialism and colonialism and, and like, white supremacy? And, like, you know, they, they drop the N-bomb um, when, you know, the ghosts become aware that Hallahan is coming and, like, you know, they must stop this outside element from coming in and then you must correct the behaviours and all of this. And it is all really interesting to put on there but it still works without any of that um that's the thing is like and obviously this is a movie that's been picked over yeah. to death like i mean you you were planning on watching i started watching uh, i'm actually glad i didn't go out of my way to watch it um there's a documentary it's on prime i'm sure it's other places it's called room 237 and it's just a series of academics just sharing theories about The Shining, and some of them are like so clutching at things that are barely there. I mean, I mean, the big one is is like the moon is two hundred and thirty-seven thousand mm-hmm. miles away from the Earth, and Kubrick faked the moon landing. Uh huh. Uh huh. Holocaust symbolism, the typewriter, uh, the use of eagles and stuff like that, and it's like, yeah, I know iron eagles and stuff like that are a symbol of Germany, but also the. <laughs> An eagle is like the fucking animal of America. So like, I think I think the Native American one has a little bit more grounds than, than the Holocaust one. But yeah, I mean, this is what happens. It becomes first a cult hit and then a, a reevaluated like giant towering thing of pop culture where it's in it's mimetic, all of the all the stuff. So of course people are just gonna pick it apart yeah, every I mean, like, tiny thing. <laughs> I think probably the most famous deployment of it in the last kind of like decade is the entirety of like the second quest in Ready Player One is <laughs> a a one for one recreation of the Overlook Hotel. Yeah. Um, I think it's the best sequence in a thoroughly mediocre movie, <laughs> where it feels like Spielberg is kind of like pushing himself in this tribute to Kubrick. And yeah. like obviously the original yeah. plan for that was it was going to be a Blade Runner riff, mm. but like it should probably moment... have landed more with the audience of Ready Player One. But yeah, but still. like the, the moment they fucking like walk through the doors <laughs> no, no, yeah. and the score, the Shining starts playing, and I mean, you see that, the, that the hotel set. is is the set design on because I mean there is a real hotel and they changed it from room two one seven to room two three seven because the hotel were worried no one's going to want to stay in room two one seven. But it's still obviously the, the opposite happens. Yeah, it's the most requested one, but a lot of it is a set. Which is why, and another one, people are picking apart, like, the geography of this hotel is impossible, this window is nowhere, this corridor shouldn't lead here. And, like, they've said, like, that's on purpose. Like, it's a horror movie. It's meant to just fuck you up a bit. You know, the hotel as an analogue to the maze. Like, the hotel is a maze as much as the maze is a maze. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we talk about production design quite a lot. Like, and yeah. I think this this is the, the best set potentially ever made for a movie. It's beautiful. Like, 
honestly, like staggeringly big, like antiquity style rooms of just extravagant wealth. But then you've got these like super bold colors, like the red and the green, the, the separate bathrooms, the bright red bathroom, the bright green bathroom. It just does not look like it belongs in the same time period. And I think that's sort of the point. Yeah. Um, and, is and you have the, the renovated bit and you have the, the, the old bit where the ghosts reside. And obviously the thing that kind of like really helps the kind of like the, the otherworldliness of like mm. how the hotel looks, like the colours, like a, a friend sent a picture of like a carpet in a in a pub that he was in and it was yeah. the shining carpet. And it was yeah. just like, oh, I don't, that feels weird. <laughs> it does, that. doesn't it? But um, like, you know, you see this... Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that, like, the likes of, say, a Noah Hawley, if you look at some of the set design of Legion, and even parts of Fargo, and, you know, just many other people have been, like, so clearly directly influenced by the production design of this Overlook Hotel. Like, yeah. it, it's, it's so weird. Um, it should not exist, and that's what makes it beautiful. And, like, you know, I'm stunned that they slapped Kubrick with a Worst Director nomination, because... You know, there's talk of it being plodding and teasing things that it doesn't do anything with. And again, like you, I'm I'm right with you. Like, are you fucking high? But like, every time they are just following Danny with Steadicam on his big wheel, riding around the hotel, or like going through the maze, I'm like, this is incredible. <laughs> they, they they probably just let this kid go for like hours. I mean, but that's the thing just to like, get B-roll. <laughs> the thing that makes this work so well is that this is one of the first movies to use Steadicam. Mm-hmm. And it really I think quite helped. literally one of the first like six or seven movies. That yeah, used like it. like it's Bound for the Glory, Marathon Man, Rocky had all used it a couple of years previously, but this mm. movie I feel like is one of the first times that it kind of shows just what you can do. Yeah. Like all of these fucking shots where they're following the kid from behind on his little tricycle going through the hallways, <laughs> and like your your again like it shows off the impossibility of like the layout and stuff like that and yeah. and you're getting all these like different things and the sound quality of like his wheels going on the carpet and then going on the floor yeah and, and, and the, i mean the sound design in general is yeah you know, the constant use of the heartbeat the the huge booming music and everything um but yeah and like in the maze especially at the end when when jack is is chasing his kid into the maze and like you see the kid trip and fall back and look at the camera and it's like is this literally pov like and we know it's not because he's so much further behind him and he's shambling but it does give you that effect of like are we POVing the murderer in a, in a, in a slasher movie which isn't an oft done thing or if it is it's like static it's like we're looking out of the closet at jamie lee curtis or whatever you oh, know yes. like, it, it's that kind of thing where it's stoic and it and it, it, it it's static and it, it it's heavy breathing you don't often see like we are like as the killer is about to make the kill like through their eyes kind of thing. Yeah, all of that is I incredible. Mean, I think that's the thing that makes the Oscar snub so much worse. It's like I understand if you didn't think that this was like best picture or mm. you're kind of bored of Kubrick's stick, but like I don't understand how you can look at this movie and go like we're not going to give it a nomination for production design. We're not going to give it a number a nomination for cinematography. We're not going to give it a nomination for for music and stuff like that like mm. i mean i understand like so much of what makes this movie so good is the it's a lot of kind of using classical pieces of music isn't it yeah yeah but they obviously like it feels distorted and it kind of like heightens the entire mood of it and but like and even like that bleeds into the like <sighs> you know the white supremacy factor of like trying to protect these these old ideals and stuff uh, from modern times, and I think I've even seen like 
like a there's there's a perceived generational divide where Jack respects the power of the written word and kids these days are all about images and stuff you know like it's interesting like you know the the, the kind of uh, elitism that goes with classical music is, is is sort of weaponized as well yeah I mean I love how it kicks in in mm. scenes where like nothing is going to happen yeah and so you just have it just, it's just building tension yeah. for nothing to happen and I think that's what like the Pauline Kael quote that I read earlier yeah. is kind of getting at is like they're expecting a payoff yeah yeah for there, this tension they're there is certainly the a lot of that where like like I said, they go two hours before it actually happens. And there are creepy things that happen before that. Like the blood elevator, the twins, red rum, uh, the naked lady. All of that is there. But there but are not... so many scenes where it's just actually completely innocent and nothing happens. But they still hit you with all of the tension. And like, I get what they mean, but they are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think... The only one of these, like, the only kind of, like, cut that's supposed to, like, jar you, really, in the entire movie, well, there's two. It's the, the girls be on the floor, mm. like, covered in the blood. Yeah. Because obviously yeah, that's yeah, such yeah. a, like, a smash cut into it. And it doesn't have any, like, lead-in yeah. into, like, making you feel safe. And then the other one is obviously Jack being frozen to death at the end of the movie. <laughs> but, like, you think of, like, even even when he's in the bathroom and, like, mm. the naked lady has, like, got out of the bath and, like, yeah. they're, they're, they're kissing... It's like a slow... It's Yeah, like you yeah. cut to the mirror, you realise there's something wrong in the mirror, and then you push away and you realise that she's kind of like rotting and covered in like fungus and stuff like that. And and But it isn't done in such a way that makes you go like, the tension is alleviated immediately, the tension's kind of like still slowly dissipating as you're, as you're watching it. And I mean, so, so that's one question. So this is wrong about Room 237. Why do you think Room 237, like the place that is seen as the worst room because it, it does is strange like... isn't it because like the incident that i would be more concerned about is the guy that did your job 10 years ago hacked his family to pieces and killed himself and then you know the impetus of all of what happens comes from the bar and like you know the the, the old part of the hotel and 237 like you know they do signpost it and he's like what happened in 237 and he's like oh we don't we don't talk about 237 and then it kind of feels very inconsequential i mean you know it, it's a it's a scary moment and Danny claims that this woman tried to strangle him and he, he has some kind of physical damage and, and that's part of where this all starts to unravel a bit where Jack is like, oh, I think he did it to himself. And, you know, maybe that's a valid reading. It's interesting because, like, the movie never... If if you're making the movie nowadays, it feels like you have it be kind of like the three different interpretations where it's like, yeah. this is where the twins were murdered. This yeah. is also where someone was drowned in a bathtub. And Absolutely. And also where some kind of, like, weird bare sex orgy happened. And yeah, like, it's a recurring room for incidents and that isn't the case whatsoever and it feels like 237 has become like like the fandom has seized you know like i don't know why this is the first thing that came to mind but like that firefly fans call themselves the brown coats which is such an inconsequential piece of the fucking actual text but it has become so big for the fandom and i feel 237 is is that for the shining where like i don't think there was an intention to make 237 like the hub of all the activity it's just one of the many things that is fucked up in the hotel. And I don't know, you know, maybe it would be better if it was all one room, but then that starts to feel very, and that feels very king, you know, for it to all be coming from one central location. That but then can... I guess it feels like there's a, there's a way you can stop it. Like if everything's in one room, it's like, well, just Yeah, exa- exactly. There's like a, there's a thing you can, there's a heart of this that you could destroy. And I feel that for me would ruin it. 
Um, yeah, and I think I think that's what the the book kind of does is in the book. There's a boiler, there's, right? There's a broken boiler mm. that's kind of like frequently recalled to over the course of the movie, mm. and ultimately, like they use the boiler to destroy the hotel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Before they leave, so it, it, it functionally ends in a very similar way, but like yeah. the the hotel is the hotel is blown up. And you've also got like, doesn't he find some like manuscript pages that like inspire him to start writing, and that's when he starts to unravel. And the the implication is that like you know some past version of himself or like the pages themselves have infected him or or, or whatever. Yeah, like um, like King is way more interested in it being explicitly caused by the ghost or the spirits that inhabit the building. Like, yeah, but, like, these are just normal people who have fallen victim to a very real supernatural element, um, and they would have been fine if they never went near it. And Kubrick is like, hey, normal people can be super fucked up, huh? Yeah, like, there's so many ways you can look at it. it is, like, normal people are fucked up. It's literally just cabin fever, and he's yeah. imagining this, these ghosts. He is predestined to come here like it's not yeah. a supernatural reason he is just supposed to come to this building and supposed to do these things in yeah. the same way that uh grady was like because grady is like again the the famous line was like, you've always been here sir which yeah i mean, yeah, I mean yeah. the, the other thing that i fucking showed alex afterwards was uh the key and peel sketch for the, <laughs> the continental breakfast which yeah, yeah, yeah like is is another like kind of like huge mm. reference to this movie that like Oh, I, I, I love that sketch so much. Yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. It's it's so funny when you watch it up, right after the movie, and he's like, "Oh, you're going to stay in room two, three, seven and then like it's just this guy <laughs> eating constant breakfast. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Is this, the thing that's so incredible about this movie is that like we've already mentioned, like The Simpsons, Key and Peele, Ready Player One are picking over this movie it, in the culture at large, and it doesn't diminish no. what this movie achieves. No, and. I think that's kind of like a good point now to kind of cut to Stephen King wrote a sequel to this. Book. Yeah, so I have not read it. I have not seen it. I don't know much about it at all other than like Ewan McGregor is playing the adult Danny, right? Yeah, so the book is kind of like a lot more explicitly about The Shining, obviously. It's ah. about a... Uh, Where does it come from? How does it work? Or? Sort of, but it's like, it's it's kind of... My so my interpretation of The Shining is that like The Shining or the The Shining is like leads people to this building and basically the building wants to kill people who have the shine essentially, um, right. which is why Danny kind of needs to die and it's why the the two girls need to die and stuff like that. But that's just like my right okay. feel for the movie. It's entirely something. Like, are kids more sensitive to it? Or... Right, exactly. Yeah. And and the book kind of deals with like a creature who basically they feed on the steam released by children with the shining um steam and so they released steam, yes yes so they basically you know how we all release steam <laughs> so they kill these children and basically and like feast on it and stuff like that and the book ultimately is like danny helping like a child who's got a really strong sense of the shining to like help her survive and stuff like that it's fine as a book it definitely doesn't need to exist the more interesting thing to discuss is mike flanagan's adaptation of it into a movie yeah so this i do know is that king sort of wanted him king like wrote dr sleep to like ignore the movie and double down on the book yeah so in the in the book the the overlook hotel has been destroyed i don't think they even go to the overlook hotel in the book dr sleep and mike flanagan basically goes like we have to set act three at the overlook hotel like that has to happen and king's like no fuck off <laughs> yeah and he and, he makes the correct point it is impossible to ignore the movie. Like, 
Mr. King, you may not like it, but it is so iconic. And if you say The Shining, people can see that hotel. And to just completely ignore it. Also to me, very funny that the, the thing called The Shining centers around the hotel and then he writes a sequel that is all about The Shining that isn't called The Shining, you know? And like, where does Dr. Sleep cut? Is, is he Dr. Sleep? Yes, he is Dr. Sleep because he uses his Shining to basically help people pass away. Oh, cool. <laughs> so like, so like, he goes to like hospice care and stuff like that. So people who are like dying yeah. of like various diseases and like kind yeah. of like uses his shining to kill them, like kill them like that. Um, but yeah, the, the the movie has this kind of like incredible sense of like it's a sequel to both the book and the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like it, it's a really fascinating look into like adaptation and kind of appeasing two masters based on like what this sequel needs to be. And like you watch the trailer, and there's so much imagery from The Shining, but it's all done in such a way that doesn't negate mm. the the plot of the book. And it's like yeah. uh, Mike Flanagan's obviously a real talent. He obviously spends most of his time nowadays doing Netflix miniseries <laughs> in this world of that. But like, and I, I'm not going to say that Doctor Sleep is like some some like it's it's a, a sensual viewing experience on the level of The Shining. But like, just as like a like a a view into like how you can do adaptation, it is really really interesting about appeasing these two muscles essentially and yeah. and like yeah it is calling back to stuff like the the culmination of the movie is kind of him putting the ghost in room 237 to peace essentially right. um, okay. yeah like i i mean again it, uh, the, yeah. the director's cut the longer version is definitely more more interesting than the the shorter version but yeah i definitely okay. it, it's and a there's... recommendation but not on the level of like the shines a masterpiece and dr sleep is like a step lower it's like <laughs> It's, it's just interesting as a viewing okay. experience. Yeah, I mean, I was, like, trying to imagine what a sequel would even be. I'm like, I mean, yeah, you could go more into, like, more people that have The Shining, but, like, it feels so... And I guess this is King's Hold Beef. Like, it feels so tied directly into that hotel and that location more than it does the people. And... I gather there is. I think there's an HBO series coming called Overlook. Yeah, JJ Abrams working on it, and JJ Abrams has kind of had a falling out with HBO. I think with oh, the cool. new the new management coming in for Discovery, um, they cancelled his like long gestating HBO series as well. So mm. who knows what's going to come of that? Yeah. But obviously, like we're we're now at a point in culture where like nothing is sacred. You can make one of the greatest movies of all time, and we will franchise it to death because it's got like iconic stuff. Yeah, we could explain every element and pick it apart and have an origin story for for every single part. Of it and everything like as we kind of like wrap up mm. obviously this movie's got like a very stripped down cast and stuff like that yeah. like what do you think of like i think scatman crothers as dick halloran is like the only person who gets contemporary respect yeah i was gonna like on some level i want to flippantly be like jack nicholson's the only real actor in this thing but like i do think scatman crothers is great in it um it's such a good little presence and i really like that you know, you have the obvious, not at all subtle signposting of Danny sees the blood elevator so early in the movie and he sees the twins and all that. But then you just have subtle things like he calls him Doc and then she's like, um, how do you know he's called Doc? And stuff like that. And like, you know, that's such a such a trope that, you know, we've seen as recently as, as Doctor Strange too. Yeah, just there's nice little subtle things like that. I fucking love that they spend basically an hour of him concerned about them wanting to get to them wanting to save the day and jack kills him in an instant <laughs> it's absolutely fucking incredible Perfect. it's possibly my no favorite. notes chef kiss 
like yeah it's it's so good and like, and again again it calls back to the Pauline Kael was like the movie promises you something and then completely pulls it away and it's like I don't think the movie's promising you anything here no. I think it's just a beautiful moment of like subverting your yeah, expectations they're going to have to save themselves like this is this is a problem within this family and this family is going to have to sort it was kind of my read on it and like you don't just get somebody running in to save the day um there is uh, we don't have to talk about this and this is a possible candidate for removal there is a trope with Stephen King and magical black men um, yes or ma- magical black people in general yes it, it, the stand obviously is very famous for like the one of the the two people who are kind of like in charge of the the post-apocalyptic kind of like tribes is mm. a magical black woman Green Mile yeah yeah he he I, has, I don't know what it is he has a super fascinating relationship to race and yes. i feel like it's really interesting that it kind of he obviously is someone who is on some level progressive like he obviously has politics that lean to the left you only have to read like his books and see his tweets to know that he he is someone who leans that way mm. but it is interesting that i haven't seen a like mainstream culture pushback yeah in terms of his it, i'm surprised it doesn't come up is that it, and like you know i guess you can make an argument that he's like Obviously, he's subverting the power dynamic, kind of. Well, he's not, because these people die. But, like, why not make the black character have the magical powers? Why, you know, to, like, elevate them and make them special? But then, like, that is problematic in its own way. Like... I think he, he it's interesting because, obviously, it's similar to, I guess, you could liken it to the debate around sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, is it lazy shorthand to have your villainous character commit sexual assault yeah, 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 yeah. and use the N-word. Like, yeah. are, are those lazy shorthands to show that this is someone that you should not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, let's do these things to kind of portray culture in... Like, as a, again, a, a shorthand for villainous characters. And I feel like he does do that a lot, which is yeah. that, like, he very rarely has the good characters using racial or sexuality-based epithets... And it's always, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there are these arguments that, like, his biggest thing is morality and, and, and stuff like that. And there's actually a really interesting debate about, out of the two of them, Kubrick and, and King, there's this, I think King phrases it as Kubrick thinks too much and feels too little. And then a famous critic of King's work said, I think King feels too much and thinks too little. Where you know, there is some kind of tonal disconnect here where, like, King is like, it's fine for it to be supernatural and it's fine for there not to be explanations because, like, just feel it, man. And then he feels Kubrick's a bit too cold, but then there's arguments like Kubrick understands the human element way more and King is using the crux of supernatural stuff. And Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a famous point at this point that King kind of doesn't know how to finish <laughs> a lot of his stories like the dark tower the stand mm. it all of them have these kind of like vaguely anticlimactic endings that are like near impossible to mm. portray on film like the yeah. stand ends with like a, the literal hand of god setting off a nuclear bomb <laughs> the dark tower literally ends with the preface saying like it like i think the story ends at this point yeah. i've written more if you want to if you want to read the actual conclusion you can and then like yeah. You, if you read more, you end up with like the, the the things that are kind of the the things that people complain about with the book in terms of like how that ends. Hmm. Uh, it is interesting when you compare like because I think the ending to The Shining, the book, is 
kind of uninteresting and kind of like the obvious way, like let's blow up the hotel, let's blow up the source of this evil. And the movie kind of goes like, nothing is resolved. This could all happen again. Um, you know, this, this could have all been predetermined. This may, you know, this may be an ongoing thing. Yeah, it does feel very late. And then it was all okay. But then, you know, he does write things like, you know, the Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me and, and these things that are a little bit more just straight up and do have endings and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, he, he, is, he is a fascinating writer and obviously yeah. he writes so much and, like, that, that that's always the thing is, like, there's always a new for King and I'll always pick up one every kind of, like, two or three years mm. just to see where he's at and I'll sometimes, like, get really into what he's doing. I mean, I, I really loved, like, 112263 when that mm. came out, like, ten years ago. Um, okay. But again, it's another one where it's kind of like, is the ending to this like super satisfying? But that's a story for another day. Yeah. Uh, we, one... kind of we kind of didn't discuss it. Like, what are your feelings around Kubrick in general? Like, where does this fall on oh, your list of Kubrick? I mean, obviously, high, but I don't. I wouldn't say number one, but high for sure. Cause, yeah, because obviously there's only two options for Kubrick that we could have gone for, for this mini series. Yes. It's like. He only does Full Metal Jacket and this. I think this is head and shoulders above Full Metal Jacket, yeah, I think. I do like Full Metal Jacket. It's one of the rare war movies I, I like. Um, but yeah, this is so much, this is so clearly better. But like, yeah, it's not my favourite Kubrick. I think like 2001 is yeah, my Yeah, I think that's where I lean, for sure. But what a, what a weird and fascinating career for him, though, uh, in general. I mean, he's he's one of those guys who jumps around so many different genres and he works with so many talented people. I think, I think it's fair to say that this is where he gets, like, very obviously, like, an all-time this is in contention for this actor's best performance in, mm. a, in a very storied career. Like, and then not to say that, like, Malcolm McDowell isn't isn't great after, like, Clockwork Orange and stuff like that, but Jack Nicholson is, like, top five actors that Hollywood's ever produced. Yeah, like, I, I, I think... I mean, there is this... Like I said, uh, there is this perception that he he kind of treats the actors as props, and I think he is a filmmaking driven direct I know all directors are supposed to be but I don't think he's as concerned about like giving an actor a space to do a giant towering acting performance it just happens to happen because you cast Jack Nicholson but like I think he is far more interested in meticulous shots and production design and stuff like that and it's just you know the power of Jack Nicholson when he's allowed the opportunity to cut loose just shines through and as I said like I, for me, it, it, it's when it's the party and, and, and meeting the ghost and, like, you know, his entire attitude changes. It's not just, you know, the face and stuff, but, like, you know, he, he behaves completely differently. He clearly prefers the company of adult men to his wife or his kid. Like, you know, he's jovial and, like, he has this really short fuse with Wendy and then, like, a guy spills a drink on him and he's like, ah, don't worry about it. And it's like, oh, okay. And I mean, I mean again, you're bringing up the... <laughs> The, the the scene at the parties like that it's it's interesting to watch directors who kind of like very obviously are indebted to him like mm. some of the shots in this movie feel like fucking Wes Anderson shots yeah <laughs> absolutely Wes Anderson needs to make a horror movie at some point <laughs> yeah I, that's another sorry my mind completely went when I, I went to Noah Hawley but obviously also I think Anderson must be a huge Kubrick nerd for sure and yeah, and, and I mean, I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking now at like Wikipedia's got like a, a list of leading directors who have cited him as like an inspiration. It's oh, like Martin Scorsese, Spielberg, where Anderson, Lucas, Cameron, Gilliam, Coen yeah. Brothers, Ridley Scott, Romero, Nolan, Fincher, Del Toro, Lynch, Trier, Burton, Mann, Noe, 
like so just everyone really yeah basically yeah. any any director who kind of like worked afterwards and i think yeah. that's the key reason why this movie had such a monumental mm. shift in appraisal is yeah. this stuff comes from artistic people championing it like yeah. like like very rarely do you get a critical reappraisal that comes yeah. from the critics themselves yeah, like, like sometimes, sometimes you do. Sometimes you get like an in the cut or like a speed racer, but quite often it is a. <laughs> it feels like pe- people being like, "No, you don't understand the levels on which this is." You know, you can't see it. The untrained eye thinks it's boring, but those who actually understand filmmaking know that this is a, a tour de force, that kind of thing. Um, I wish I could make a movie that looked like this, felt like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. And, like, it's... it's it's mad that like I I you know. Hindsight, you know, all of that, but to just go back and like, did I see the same movie you all saw? Like, and maybe it just, it, maybe I, it was just, just people weren't ready for it. But. I mean, that's the thing is like, I was trying to think, like, because obviously this movie has, it, it changes perception so much, and so much of that is because I have to assume it's doing new things. Like, horror at this point is kind of more gore. And, mm-hmm. and like slasher movies or like we're building up to that because obviously like you've had Halloween mm-hmm. a couple of years before this we we're building up to the slasher movie era like yeah. horror movies are kind of seen as this sloppy stuff or you're kind of doing more like a Rosemary's Baby mm. type movie and this wow. for being <laughs> sure but like for this movie for being as slow as it is yeah. and kind of like light on actual scares yeah i mean it, it it's it's long as hell and you know how i feel about long movies but like i think it's gripping throughout and like so little arguably happens in air quotes but it's it's so gripping throughout and like you know where it's going it's impossible to watch it and not like i assume your partner like vaguely understood what was going to happen but like yeah, and and for me, you know, just to touch on this as just like miscellaneous, and you mentioned how few scares there are. Scariest thing in the movie is the kid's fucking Tony voice. Mm. Like, how is this child making such a deep sound? <laughs> like, um, it slips towards the end, and it just sounds like his normal voice. But yeah, uh, the little the little finger and Tony, the boy that lives in his mouth, and I think in the book his middle name is revealed as Anthony. And yeah, to me, the kid is the fucking creepiest part. And I won't go as far as to say the kid is like a a good actor but i think he does nail the physical stuff like the looking terrified and the like foaming at the mouth and all of that um, yeah no the kid the kid is doing exactly what he needs to do to yeah. kind of like create this unsettling air like it's a good piece of casting like obviously we're not saying that this is like some precocious like this child went on to have like a huge career no, it, it's not really <laughs> that but like it's it's just a piece of like they picked a kind of like really good hmm visual presence almost yeah. for this movie because ultimately like they're not asking the kid to talk much no. but the kid can do the voice which makes it unsettling <laughs> but most of the time it is just the the steady cam shots of the tricycle and stuff yeah like that. and he just when he's just like staring off into the distance oh and there's another one when they're playing in the snow and we just come back to jack standing <laughs> just looking fucking demented yeah for no, for nothing, and that's I mean, another one where there's like no payoff, and it's like, oh, okay, that happened really fast. Never mind, incredible. And the beginning, I think, I think these actors have a fair amount in common. Something I said to you recently when I was rewatching all Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise never looks more insane than when he's trying to just sit down and have a normal conversation and smile with people. <laughs> and yes. I think the exact same thing happens with Nicholson. <laughs> At the beginning, he and when he's just having casual chats with people, he looks fucking insane. <laughs> yeah, 
You're just waiting for him to explode. I mean, I'm sad we haven't had a chance to talk more Nicholson. Jack's, Jack's the man. Like, he fucking rules. Um, like, it, it's sad that he retired, but like, I feel like he went out with like a couple of good performances. But yeah, yeah like he's he's. I want to go as far as say he's never missed, but he very rarely missed. Just so much presence and like, I mean, true we're, we're, movie stuff. We're, we're gonna have a chance to discuss him later on this mini series. Mm-hmm. Just an absolutely incredible presence that I absolutely love. But like what we've done, we've done a few good men. We've done this, we've done oh. the departed. And I think that's it. Yeah. For, for I mean, I've done uh, Batman 89. Yes. Mike you've done Thomas. Batman 89, which obviously like kind of, I, that's the one that kind of like cements him was like, Oh, this is all time. Yeah. yeah. God he he can do anything. But I'm just, I'm just thinking like in terms of like, you have this performance yeah. in this movie and then seven years later, he does witches of Eastwick, which <laughs> is just this movie, which is basically just like, what if Jack Nicholson looked disgusting was also the sexiest man <laughs> of all time. And like, he just fucking nails it. Cause yeah, he's just got yeah. this like swagger that he's able to like, he looks so interesting and is yeah. able to just, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, what can you say? Like, you know, nails all of it, and then just shambling about the hotel. The fucking caving in the door. Here's Johnny, which I know it's a Johnny Carson reference, but I also always took it as like Jack is often short for John, which is fucked up because they're the same number of letters. So I took it as like he's he's talking about himself, but never mind. And I I think my favorite piece of trivia is that like. They used a fake door, but because he had experience in firefighting, he tore through it in seconds, so they had to use a, a real door. Um, which, you know, of course he was a firefighter. Why wouldn't he be? Yeah. I um, think there's not much more no, to say, no, I don't no. think, I'm, about I'm the movie. Done. I'm done. I just, you know, we're just going to descend into, how about that scene? How about this scene? Yeah, no, um, it, 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 it's an incredible movie. It yeah. obviously has reached its place in culture for, yeah. for, for very good reasons. Yeah, I'm excited to see kind of like what because obviously certain sounds coming out later on this year, and I'm interested to see like where this movie kind of like places on in terms of like the modern interpretation because it feels like it's it's had this massive influence over the kind of the prestige quote unquote horror movement of the last couple of years. It feels yeah. like this is all the movie where they're kind of borrowing from as opposed to the the slasher movies that kind of like completely dominate now in between Halloween yeah. and stuff like that. Like yeah. this feels more in line with a hereditary or a well, or a I mean, witch and stuff like that. People fucking saw Halloween and just weren't as good at it, is the thing. Yeah. Like, that's what happens. Something is really good, and then people who are schlocky amateurs and hacks fucking go off 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. But also, it. they'd make like a decent amount of money and stuff. Yeah. Like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's yeah. what we also didn't really touch on is that this movie is produced for $90 million. Mm. It makes 47.3. It's kind of like a very soft box office, but now I'm sure, like, no well, it's not terrible it. though. No, but like Warner Brothers, obviously, are very happy with. It. They they keep fucking re-releasing um, versions of it. Yeah. They're happy to stick it in the middle of Ready Player One. Like the <laughs> idea that you would make a two hundred million dollar blockbuster in the twenty tens yeah. and go like, yeah, sure, this movie that made forty million dollars in nineteen eighty is going to be the centerpiece <laughs> of the fucking. I mean, but they and he also, didn't make another movie for fucking. Yeah, and, and, but you've also got the fact that like fucking Iron Giants in that movie and how much yeah, money did the Iron yeah. Giant make when it came out? So it, true, it's true, weird true. to look at how culture changes as we well speaking of culture changing speaking of genres and and things going in different directions uh next week we have airplane which excited yeah i don't know how we're gonna pod about that because that is a fucking movie of like what if we just told you one joke every 20 seconds (laughs) i might say we basically both pick our like five favorite jokes yeah 
Sure. And then basically, like, we just drill down into what makes them so good. I'll, I'll tell you all about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You should watch Winning Time by next week. We'll obviously do the backstory of, like, the fucking fact the script is just yeah. another serious movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm, so, I'm excited. Like, I no idea how it's going to go, but I'm Me just too. excited to rewatch it. I feel it. this is one of our final tests after, you know, we've done podcasting school and we've come out the other side better at podcasting and here's a true test. Airplane, fucking great movie and we'll see how talking about it goes. But until then, my name is Matt Waters. I have been joined for the last hour and a bit by Benjamin Phillips. Ben, thank you for your time and I have one final question for you. Will there be movies? Red rum. Red rum. <laughs> oh, it's bad and I love it. Goodbye, everyone. I did it for so long. Still, I didn't know. And I did it for so